Hi, this is Pete Worrell, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the Private Enterprise Value Podcast. Here, we interview seasoned, successful entrepreneur owner managers who are successfully striving for achievement and fulfillment. This striving typically leaves clues, deconstructing the behavior of the highest performing EOMs, following their breadcrumbs in the woods, lets us learn a lot about peak performance and optimal experience. Our podcast is found on iTunes and SoundCloud at www.privateenterprisevalue.com and www.bigelowllc.com. In this podcast episode, we share with you the interview I had the fun of recording with my good friend, Jay Jacobs, a parallel entrepreneur, founder of many companies, the most well-known of which so far is Rapid Manufacturing. Rapid is a digital manufacturing firm founded by Jay in the early 2000s. Using some of the thought leadership and manufacturing processes he developed by working with custom manufacturers over the prior 10 years, Jay and his team built Rapid to be one of the leaders in the country with over 350 employees delivering 99% of their orders on time or early. I've had the fun of getting to know Jay over the past year as we at Bigelow worked with Jay and his senior management team to architect its acquisition by Proto Labs, a public company that most people would say is the global leader in digital manufacturing. Jay and I talk a bit about the concept of mind following body, the meditation and rejuvenation that comes from physical fitness, his career path as an engineer and employee for others, to his nascent entrepreneurship. Jay candidly describes some of the challenges of moving from rugged individual, that is, chief cook and bottle washer, to unique team member, that is, managing the managers. He describes some of his fears and failures, which helped him discover the road to success. Jay and I had a private conversation between the two of us about the varied experiences of his 25-year journey that you will hear him candidly describe. I think there are incredible teachable moments here for other high-performing EOMs, the learning and unlearning, the knowing and not knowing. Our conversation was spontaneous, unrehearsed, unscripted. I had an idea of directionally what themes I was intending to surface, but Jay did not know what the questions would be in advance. And as you'll hear, we did not rehearse. Our conversation was recorded at Bigelow. Let us know if you like it. Here's the interview. So, um, you know, I think you and I both probably think mind follows body, right? Mm-hmm. And so as you have been like accelerating your learning in the physical and the fitness in the higher performance area, have you noticed or observed your own thinking processing changing? Well, I would say the physical fitness is almost like meditation to me. And when you are focused on the moves and the strength, you're not thinking about anything else. So it brings definitely brings a calmness to me. Cannot say that there's definitely a, a some dots connecting between the two that I can point to. Yeah, but we both can say that um, that sense of uh, refreshment or rejuvenation that comes from the physical side, absolutely, uh, you know, kind of helps us cope with the other side. Oh yeah. So, other than like 
a an athlete or a high performance person on the physical side, if you were to use like a noun or two to describe what you've been doing for the past 20 plus years, how would you describe it? I would say thinker and student. Tell me more about that. Thinker of what and student of what? What brings me joy is the assimilation of information through conversations and reading and observations and I like to ponder those ideas that data and look at different ways that they might be combined and I think that that's led to some of the different things that I did at Rapid and in other areas of my life. In terms of student, it's just for constantly looking to learn. I'm curious. Right. So anyone who knows you and your work over the past 20 plus years would look at you as a super successful entrepreneur. Were your parents entrepreneurs? Did that come from them? I think there's a little bit in there. My father was self-employed later in his career. He went out on his own as a manufacturer's rep, which is a commission salesperson, uh, gun for hire. And so growing up as a kid, you had some role models in and out of the house. Mm -hmm. Is that what you thought you were going to be when you were growing up? No. No, I did not envision. <coughs> and I think back at the time, entrepreneurs were not as prevalent as they are now. Right. So I figured that I would, I liked engineering, I liked the math and science, and I would have a career uh, in engineering, whether it was on the design side or as that ultimately in the sales side. So you um, went to um, college after high school mm -hmm. and studied engineering. And um, do you think that there was anything about your background, like when you're growing up, even through high school, that made you energized about like designing stuff and making stuff? Sure. I was sort of a nerd in the sense that I spent a lot of time making plastic models, dioramas of military, World War II era uh, battle scenes. Really? Small ones? or S Yes, small ones, 135th scale. And I would construct the, so a, the diorama had not only the figures and the vehicles, but also the land, the buildings, and those typically were put together by scratch. Wow. Is that something you've continued? No. Could it be something you go back to? It might be. Yeah. Yeah. So as you graduated from college and you had an engineering background, what was your major in? Mechanical. Right. And uh, as you thought about your career, do I have it? Well, why don't you remind me? Did you go to work for a, a 3D printing company at that point? No. 3D printing wasn't around yet. I went to work. My first job was inside sales at a bearing manufacturer up in Laconia, New Hampshire. Yeah, New Hampshire ball bearing. Oh, yeah. And then I 
wanted to get into outside sales, and I saw an ad in the paper for a model shop down in Beverly, Massachusetts, and that's really what they were called back then. That was in 87. Was that a prototype shop? Prototype shop. So there were no fancy machines to make the prototypes, so you had model makers who were both machinists and or pattern makers, and they would figure out how to make the pieces and put them together to make a prototype for the equipment that was designed. Did they have a specialty in the kind of equipment that was being designed? They got started making, they were in, again, Beverly Mass, so they got started making mock-ups of the aircraft engines for GE Lynn. Oh, yeah. And then is that what you worked on, or did you work in no, a different area? my area was different. I worked actually with a lot of industrial design firms in the Boston area as they, because they were continually developing pro- products for other companies and needed models and prototypes. So was that a good experience? Great experience. Yeah. And, okay, so is that when you went to the 3D printing company as the industry well, we, began to emerge? This company was Santon Engineering, and... As I was there, 3D printing started coming out, and we read about it and went to shows and saw a little bit about it. So I wrote up a business plan and presented it to my boss, the owner of the company, and said, we have the opportunity to be the first company offering these sterile lithography 3D printing services in New England. Almost like a service bureau? Service bureau. That's what they were called back then. Right. Yep. So... He bid on that, and we bought the SLA 250 in 1989, brought it in, and started making parts. The big problem was, though, the CAD systems back then, most of them could not output the file type that you needed to run a 3D printer. So the applications for it were very limited, and you almost had to model in CAD the parts for the company so that they, you could then print them for them. So was that ultimately a successful um, venture for the yes. prototype company? Yeah. And did you then um, help to sell those services? Yes. Yeah. Great. Is that what ultimately made you morph into going towards your own firm? The journey from there went to my boss at Santon Engineering had left a year before and he had started a CAD reseller company and I saw a lot more opportunity with him so I went and joined him and sold CAD software for three years focused on 3D modeling side of it that was more interesting than the 2D side that led to CAM software the computer-aided manufacturing software. So we started selling that, and I saw the opportunity for a prototype shop that machined parts from the 3D CAD data, and that was back in 93. So I came up with a company, I wrote a business plan, and I bought a milling machine and was going to start that. And right before the milling machine was delivered my wife told me that she was pregnant with our first child which 
was not the part of the plan because the idea was that this was going to take a while to get up and running and she would be able to provide the health care and benefits and a stable salary while this was gone. Right. So we pivoted and I sold the machine and myself to another model shop who was interested in getting into 3D machining and helped them get going. Um, and then that led to a, another sterilophography service bureau startup that recruited me. They were originally called Brookfield Rapid Solutions and we became the largest sterilophography service bureau in New England uh, in three years. Well, and was that focused on a particular vertical segment? Well, 3D printing back then, and probably even still today, is more focused on plastic parts. Mm -hmm. So we were pretty vertical. We did 3D printing. We did what's called urethane casting, which is to use a rubber mold and inject urethane and make duplicates from the 3D printed master. Then we machine molds out of metal and manufactured injection molded parts. So we were able to take the customer from quantity one to thousands. And we focused on speed. So what year was this roughly? I was with Brookfield from 96 to 99. So what made you depart there? Well, they had ambitions and they we had a sister company and then in 98 they acquired two more companies and there were four discrete services to be sold so essentially they wanted me to become rather than just selling the sterilophography service bureau model parts they wanted me to sell the suite of services from the four companies and I looked at that and said well I could do that, but I'm essentially a manufacturer's rep. And if I'm going to be a manufacturer's rep, I'd rather work for myself and pick the types of products and services I want to sell and work with the, the shops that I want to work with. So I went out on my own. And was that the, um, the opening of Rapid? No, that was, that was just Jay uh, <laughs> wanting to be his own boss, I guess. Right. And so you were a, an independent rep. I was an independent rep. Went out. I found a company that was struggling on the sales side, and became essentially their salesperson. That was my foundation job shop to sell for. And then I went out and I hustled and found other job shops who were looking for services. And one of those was a sheet metal shop up in New Hampshire called Prototech and they I, I knew how to sell prototypes I knew how to sell parts that people wanted fast and that's was their niche and that went really well except this was 99 2000 and that's when the internet boom was going on as well as all the equipment providers to the internet boom the tele, telecom companies and Prototech sold themselves to another sheet metal shop who needed the capacity for those types of companies. So all of a sudden, I was without a big part of my income stream. And 
and I still had customers who wanted the services, and they shut down the prototyping entirely. Uh -huh. So there was a big gap in the market. So I knew that there was demand, and so I said, okay, it looks like an opportunity. So really, you had uh, 10 years of fairly varied experience, mm -hmm. uh, both technically, but also perhaps more importantly, on the customer and sales side, try, listening to customers and trying to understand what their needs were before you kicked off rapid manufacturing. Yes. The other advantage I had in selling CAD is I focused on job shops. So I had literally been in hundreds of different custom manufacturing companies in the previous decade and got to see successful shops, got to see the not-so-successful shops, and I think I picked up the different pieces along the way that I was able to incorporate in my vision of running a job shop. So as you moved from uh, employee to uh, independent rep to business owner, mm -hmm. um, as a business owner, do you look back and have some surprises about things that are more challenging or different as a business owner than maybe you would have known as a young employee or a rep? It's funny you say that, Pete, because I absolutely, I think about some of the demands uh, that I placed upon my bosses. <laughs> Why can't we just do this? Right. And being on the other side of the table, understood the constraints that as much as you might like to make something happen, it whether it's money, time, resources, you just can't do it, even though it might make sense to someone who doesn't have all the pieces of the puzzle. So if you could um, give young Jay some advice uh, early in his career, what would it be now looking back? Well, I think it's something that I developed over time, which was patience and letting things unfold in a more natural state rather than trying to push and rush and have them blow up on you at times. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. I still <laughs> struggle with that. Yeah. Patience is a virtue. So um, as you think about then Rapid, and of course you've just been through a capital gain transaction where Rapid was acquired by Proto Labs. Mm -hmm. um, do you see in Rapid's uh, progress, do you think about it in terms of chapters? I mean, do you see certain uh, periods of time that were, where the challenges were different? And if so, kind of what are they? Well, in the beginning, we were a very small company. So I was a doer. And what that meant is I Although we had an office manager, I understood all the office manager functions. I didn't know how to make sheet metal parts. That was foreign to me. But I did all the quoting. I understood the financials. And except for engineering parts and making parts, I understood and could do any part of the operation. And in particular, the quoting. And there became a time, and this was quite conscious and I look back on it and this was a definitely a turning point where I, I made really good quotes. I, I put out a quote that the customers, I, I anticipated what they were looking for and 
I was proud of my quotes. <laughs> but it got to the point where as we grew, the amount of quotes that needed to go out, I just couldn't continue to put out myself. So I had to train someone else to do that and actually trained a couple other people. And they, the quotes just weren't as good as mine, Pete. <laughs> I believe that, Jay. And initially I got frustrated. And we've got to put out these great quotes. And then I guess I had an epiphany and I said to myself, you know, we can have great quotes and I can micromanage that and we cannot grow because that'll be a constraint. There's only so much bandwidth. Or I can sort of turn my head to the side and not look at how the sausage is made. And as long as the quotes are going out and we're getting orders, which we were getting orders from the folks who were quoting, then if I wanted to grow the company, I had to delegate and let go and not micromanage. So that was a very conscious decision and that enabled me to continue to delegate tasks downstream. Yeah, that's a huge one. I mean, I, I don't have the data in front of me, but just anecdotally, I think it's well accepted that, you know, 50% or more of all startups don't make it to the fifth year. And then I would guess that the vast majority of them get stuck on that point that you just made and only go to maybe a certain size. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're only a single employee and sometimes it's a handful. Mm -hmm. But not many are able to transcend that and get to the point of growth that you've certainly had. Sure. Yeah. Did any of that thinking coincide with you? Is that about when you got involved with Dan Sullivan and Strategic Coach? No, that was much further downstream. That was further along. Yep. So I would say the another turning point in the journey was that we were originally, if, if somebody wanted something different, I used to say we could open the door to the shop and just yell out to the person on the laser, hey, do it like the print says, except don't do this. As we continued to grow, we added shifts and it just wasn't possible for a person-to-person -person communication to happen for all jobs. So another turning point was we had to make investments up front and develop the systems so that the conversations at the quote stage and at the order acceptance stage were put into the manufacturing instruction set so the customer got exactly what they were looking for. And that was really hard to do. And But it was critical to move to be able to scale and grow. And most job shops don't have that ability. Right. So that was a critical point. And did you have a, um, a personal role in that? Yes. Yeah. We would, it was constant iteration a lot of mistakes, but one of the great things about a prototype shop is that we cleared our backlog roughly every two weeks, so we had lots of opportunities to try over. Yeah. And so that's sort of a secret advantage, I think, over a lot of other shops. Mm. Um, the Dan Sullivan strategic coach 
probably about five years ago, I somehow realized that if I was going to lead the company to greater growth, that I had to go beyond the southern New Hampshire area in, in the reading and the conversations that happened there and get more information, uh, learn from people who were much better at it than I was. So I started attending conferences and joining organizations to help me become a better leader and understand the, the systems that would be needed to catapult us to the growth that we wanted to achieve. Yeah, it makes sense. As you sat down and started talking about being a student, mm -hmm. so in a way you were activating your student again, right? Yep. By putting yourself in those situations. Yep. Was there another chapter? Well, the early chapter there was the, we needed a structure, and I hate structure. But in order to grow, we needed structure, so we started implementing the Rockefeller Habits, which was a book by Vern Harnish. He's now changed it to Scaling Up, uh, mm -hmm. version 2.0, and that worked really well. So the structure, putting that in place, was, was critical. And then probably Strategic Coach was the final jump, and it allowed us to gel better as a team and particularly the tools that they introduced and one of them is the Colby test right so my COO and I at times had conflict with me wanting to just jump into something and him not ready to do so and the Colby helped explain that because one of the Colby measurements is the quick start. <laughs> and if you have more than a three difference between uh, yourself and someone else, then there is most likely going to be conflict. So I'm a nine quick start and Tom is a one. Yeah, I'm a nine also. Okay. <laughs> so what strategic coach and Colby enabled us to understand is that Tom it wasn't that he didn't want to move forward that he just needed the data to do so and he also needed to be able to process it on his own timeline so that was incredibly helpful we started having meetings and Tom would stand up go over to the whiteboard and just start writing out on the whiteboard the concepts that were, were coming out and asking questions, filling in the gaps, gathering the data that he needed to do. And at the end of the meeting, then he would take that information and think about it, and we'd sit down again a few days. Or sometimes he, he, he had enough information to process it and say, let's do it. Or Maybe a couple of days later, we would sit down and figure it out and go forward or not go forward, depending on what we discussed. Yeah, I think um, here at Bigelow, we think about uh, 
character strengths like those that are um, illustrated by the Colby, Kathy Colby's test or, or others' tests. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think we believe in is that if you had a quick start of nine and a quick start of one, uh, you know, probably it's challenging to communicate with each other because mm-hmm. you have fundamentally different speeds. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, for the customer, it actually could be more powerful if you match a nine with a one as a team. Mm. It's just tough for the team to <laughs> yes. really be communicating well all the time. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, each, as Colby says, there's no wrong Colby number. It's right. who you are. It's your intuitive way of looking at the world. And there's strengths for, for each side of it. Right, right. So even though, curiously enough, we're sitting here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire today, and while you and I both uh, live and our, our businesses are nominally in New Hampshire, both of our businesses probably have the bulk of their customers, for sure, outside of the geographic area. Mm-hmm. Um, when we met, curiously, it was in Los Angeles. Yes. And we quickly sort of bonded and I was, people say about me, Jay, that I'm um, sometimes the most focused person they know. But really, when I met you, I thought, oh, I've met my match on that one. Here's a guy that's really focused and very intentional. And you quickly uh, engaged me in a dialogue about your company's potential alternatives. Mm-hmm. Was that a chapter you had been contemplating for a while? Yes and no. My goal was not to hold rapid indefinitely, but to think about an exit after my youngest child had graduated from high school. So, yes, there was a plan. The timing happened sooner than we anticipated because he's still a junior today (laughs) in high school. But it was a great opportunity, and we had been approached by a company who myself and my management team thought, hey, if anybody was going to buy us, these folks would be the perfect fit. They would, they just shared our same DNA. Sure, sure. Anyone, I think, would look at the global fit and just think it, just nod their heads, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So could I switch to that topic for a moment and just think about, so as we went together into thinking about capturing enterprise value, uh, do you remember, were there some fears that you had going into the enterprise value capturing phase? If so, what were they? Well, one fear I did have, which turned out to be true, was that we were not dressed up to be sold. And there are things that I realized that I did as an owner that were for my benefit and perhaps the company's benefit, but from the outside percept, uh, uh, perceptive, they are not necessarily how you want to see a company being run. So we did not have the opportunity to clean those up and present ourselves so that we took away, I guess, some of the challenges and the obstacles the of understanding by an acquirer. Yeah, I think uh, when we started working together, we started at a run. Yes. Uh, immediately negotiating yeah. as opposed to preparing. Yes. I see your point on that. Were there other fears that you had that either were 
upon consideration now either were valid or were there some fears you have that you look back and say, ah, I didn't need to be worried about that at all? No, I don't think so. The, I think a fear might have been of an acquirer, would they be a good fit for the company and continue the legacy that we had built at Rapid, but with Proto Labs, that I was very comfortable with that from the get-go. Great. So, let me just move the topic from fears or emotions to more like uh, technical issues of calling learnings or unlearnings. Were there some things that you had f held close to you that you felt you had learned that you had to unlearn during this process that you found out? Oh, I need to think about that differently. Well, working capital is definitely one, <laughs> and that is still not comfortable. But I get it. It's uh, but not uh, not not really, Pete. It good good. So. Um, now that you've moved on from Rapid and you know you were an unusual entrepreneur owner manager for Bigelow because um, I haven't done a study on this but I'm gonna guess more of our friends our clients stay on for a transition period than don't mm -hmm. but um, we were able to architect an arrangement with Proto for you that allowed you to exit right away which is yes. what your desire was ultimately yes so what have you been spending your time on well combination of cleaning up all the little details that you put on hold uh, while a transaction is happening and so I'm spending some time getting my life back in order relaxing but part of the challenge that I mentioned before was the fact that I had co-founded a company in February of 2017 that was in the same space but different and I was committed to that. What do you mean same space but different? It's still in job shop manufacturing. So I co-founded Paperless Parts which is a marketplace for the online buying and selling of custom manufactured parts across all processes and commodities. And what we are doing is creating a website that looks a lot like kayak which is deliberate sure if you've ever used that travel website and a buyer can upload their 3d model and instantly get a price for that part across all the different processes that could possibly make the part and different than what's been done before is we give you the we're very transparent we give you the manufacturer's name and allow you to see their profile, contact them directly. Uh, also, like Kayak, you can filter so that if you want to focus just on 3D printing, you can filter down to only 3D printing, and then perhaps you just want fused deposition modeling, FDM. You can further click down to that process. And we have a tagline of Discover Manufacturing. So one of the things that we want to do is because it's very difficult for designers 
to get pricing on their prototypes or their, their product as they're designing it because it's typically a manual process with the shops. Well, here you can find out are you on track for your cost guidelines and what processes might I be able to make my part? What can I do to reduce the costs? What are my lead times going to be like? So that is all enabled by our marketplace even if you don't buy a part. Now, of course, we want you to be, we want you to order a part eventually, but there's really no cost to us and there's no, certainly no cost to the buyer to be able to look at all these different permutations and discover manufacturing. So that that's one, uh, a, a big piece of what I've been doing uh, since I have left Rapid. Yeah, so you mentioned that uh, you began, you, you kicked off that firm in February of 17. Uh, how would you characterize its stage of maturity now? We are probably at the Ready, ready to, ready to launch. We have 3D printing nailed down. We, our user interface is getting pretty solid, and we are starting to bring on lots of suppliers. So, before we really market to the buyers, you've got to have suppliers who can make parts for them. So we are feeling confident with the suppliers now, and we are in the first half of 2017 going to start be marketing more to the buyers. So uh, if a listener to the Private Enterprise Value Podcast wanted to go online and look at paperless parts, is there a place they could go? Paperlessparts.com. And we have some sample parts there, so you don't even have to have a 3D model. You can simply click on that and see and explore the different manufacturing options. Do you think Rapid will be a supplier to paperless parts? We would love to have Rapid be a supplier to paperless parts. We'd love to have Proto Labs. That's uh, probably down in the future. Sure. If we do a good job, we think that there'll be a lot of benefits for them to be on the platform. Sure. So you're you're a uh, unusual uh, entrepreneur specimen, Jay, because you just talked about how you had gone through many chapters of the ma- the maturing of Rapid, and going through those successfully. And then at the same time, you were starting up a new business using some different skills. Mm -hmm. What would people who know you best, maybe it's Denise or maybe it's some of your friends or or business partners, what would they say is your unique ability? It's to gather that information and data and connect dots, illuminate patterns that are not probably visible to other people. And you know, one of the things that I enjoy is grabbing information across all sorts of different domains. So, but beyond creating new ideas, uh, new concepts, being able to parse the ones that seem to have validity and test them both myself and with others by exciting them and motivating them and pushing them to explore these possibilities and make them reality. 
Yeah, I get it. I mean, it uh, seems to me that many of the solutions to today's difficult issues are found at the intersection of these domains, not mm -hmm. just strictly in one or another. Yes. Yeah, it's an unusual skill. Do you view yourself as having any kryptonite, any any you know particular weakness? Sure. Uh, Want to tell us what it is? The staying focused. And I, with a nine quick start, there's all sorts of shiny objects out there. <laughs> New things to try. Yeah. So doubling down on the opportunities that are that I can make real and will make a difference and staying focused on those so yeah I mean you, uh, I remember some discussions that you and I've had about some shiny objects and I was impressed that you uh, did commit to staying focused on certain things that you're working on um, I'm guessing that over the past several years you've had to get even better at saying no to certain distractions whether they're activities or relationships or whatever. Are there any new realizations or approaches that you've used to, to do that that you can share with us? So the, there's a tool that strategic coach Dan Sullivan has created called an impact filter. And the... I was doing one this morning, Jay. Okay. So you're... In, <laughs> And having some realization of the skills that I'm good at, I try to create impact filters to say if an opportunity will allow me to leverage those or whether it's trying to force me into areas that I might be good at but others are just as good and, and really I'm not going to add the value that I could. Great. Um, and then on the flip side, it's just the there's a lot of unanticipated opportunities that come along and you or I shouldn't say you I have made the decision that my default is going to be no unless there is something compelling that would make it a hell yeah yeah that's great so a lot of the people listening to this podcast are uh, super successful entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And we all, as we think about high-performing entrepreneurs, we think about uh, achieving goals. Mm -hmm. And we think about behaviors that we can uh, add fuel to to help achieve those goals. And then if we do those goals enough times, we use that muscle enough times, it becomes a habit, right? Mm -hmm. What are some of your best habits? best habits well I recognize that I don't like structure but I have a structure that I a morning routine that I follow that gets me in the mindset and rather than rushing into the day and letting the shiny objects take over I know what I want to focus on the top three things for the day and I write them down. Hey, so tell us a little more about that because Marissa and I were struggling with our mindset this morning. Okay. So there's a, uh, I'm not sure the author, Morning Routines. Uh, there's a book. The which, notebook. 
uh, well, there's the five-minute journal, which is part of it, but the, the guy, uh, I don't recall his last name, Hal, and there's uh, six pieces to it, and I'm probably not going to remember all six pieces, but there's the first thing in the morning, making the time to do something physical, uh, meditative, which for me is um, stretching in the morning, a, a little reading, a little writing, and just taking the time to get into a groove and um, a place where you're thinking about the day as opposed to letting the day happen to you. Right. So also, as we're on audio, but uh, I'm going to pull out the, I have note cards. Yeah. And I structure the top personal things and the top work things that I want to accomplish for the day. Right. And I like these white note cards because they're disposable. I always have them with me and I can just jot down my thoughts. Yeah, I, um, I'm smiling because in my uh, case, I have those same white note cards and I use them. But then I have notebooks mm -hmm. and I, have, I use them and I've tried everything from chronologically organizing them to thematically organizing them. And then every once in a while I buy Evernote and I promise myself I'm gonna get it all squared away and get it all online. But I really like the tactile nature of using like a pencil and paper mm -hmm. and being able to sketch without lines or anything, the kind of things I'm thinking about. Yep. Is that why you use it too? I'm not as much of a sketcher, but just the fact that it's always there, that I don't have to turn on an electronic device, I'm not a fast typer, and yeah, a lot of times, well, I guess maybe not the sketching, but I can draw arrows, I can free, free form. So I'm, I'm really interested in um, the, how important place is, uh, whether it's geography or home or something, in terms of your subjective well-being, in terms of one's subjective well-being. And it occurs to me that um, you live and have worked fairly close to where you grew up. Mm -hmm. Is that intentional? And, and how do you f think about place as feeding positive energy? Well, in terms of where I live, that is more perhaps happenstance than the intentionality. The, but within my, my place, there's a, I, I, like, I, all, I like to have two places. Yeah. One is the place where all the junk is, and I'm very visual, so I like to have it out. Uh, but it's, I, know where, I know what's in each pile. But on the flip side, it's distracting. And, and, but it's, it's out for a reason to, to have me constantly think about those things. But when I want to focus, I need to be in a room that has no distractions. And so I've created those areas as well, uh, primarily at work. What about geography, though? Do you ever feel like uh, you want to spur your creativity by going to a, I'm making this up, a different community which has a lot of high energy people in like a different part of the country or a different part of the world or how, how does that feed you in terms of that is something that I think uh, we're going to explore once my son's out of school right. the, I will say that the winters definitely sap the energy so we will not be 
spending the winters in New Hampshire. I want somewhere where there's lots of sun and where I'm able to get out and enjoy it. Um, and the community which you describe will probably play a big part of making the place where we decide to spend the, the winters, uh, or we may travel around to different places, but that'll, that the community is going to be a big part of it. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, just an observation that you'd think that with today, um, probably the vast, vast, vast majority of the people that you and I know are all connected, they're all online. Mm-hmm. And you'd think that with 7x24 global communication that it really wouldn't matter where the community was, yet I find that still hasn't gone away, that a, there are a finite number of brainy communities mm-hmm. in North America, and if you're not putting yourself into one, it's a slight disadvantage perhaps. Yes. Yeah. And that's what I've learned in starting to go to the conferences and the getting the coaching in the different organizations, that definitely the community makes a difference. Yeah. So um, you're a thinker and a reader. What are you reading right now? Anything interesting? Well, part of the cleanup has been to put some, take some notes out of the highlights, highlighted books that I've, oh, I've wow. read in the past. That's fun. So uh, post them online, will you? Sure. Have you seen uh, Derek Sivers's posts on the books that he reads? No. So it's uh, DerekSivers.org, S-I-V-E-R-S.org, mm-hmm. and he has book notes which I have found to be very insightful and in his case long, mm-hmm. which is great because I find that he takes different insights from books than the same ones that I read than I do. So okay. yeah, post your book notes. Well, yeah, but I'd love to see them. That's that's something I'm looking forward to. Post rapid is that I will have more time to be more intentional in how I take out the insights from books that I read. So perhaps that's a good way to do it: is to force myself to post them. That's great. I I don't want to put you on the spot, so the answer could be no. But would there be one or two or three books that, if you could just look up at the sky and recommend to? entrepreneurs that you found particularly helpful? Well, the one of the books that made me saw so a step back. When I started Rapid Sheet Metal, my mission was, okay, we get to a five million dollar company. It was a my intent was a lifestyle business. And I would, you know, say, hey, mission accomplished. I can just sort of coast from here and I'll make a good living. And I read a book called The Magic of Thinking Big. It's been out for quite a while. And it just opened my eyes to the possibilities. And rather than limiting my goal to $5 million, I asked myself the question, well, how could it be if I didn't constrain it? So that was a huge book for me. Uh, I also have really enjoyed over the years the four-hour work week by Tim Ferriss and some of the mindset shifts there. Yeah, I've always felt too that that was a very valuable book to me also. I think it's unfortunately titled because it's really not about working four hours a week. Right. It's getting your overhead done in four hours a week. But Right, right. 
So those two books have been, and I would say not uh, one book, but the philosophy of Stoicism has been a very valuable tool for me as I have in the last 10 years. Yeah, I, uh, I have always a copy of Marcus Aurelius by my bedside, mm -hmm. and I pulled it out the other night, and I realized that because when I do take notes in books, which I frequently do, my books are usually written all over, mm -hmm. I frequently date them. And mm -hmm. so I happily had dated some of these, which are from the 90s. Oh, wow. And actually, they're so long ago, I didn't realize that. I said, well, that's, that actually was a pretty good note. <laughs> it's sort of new to me right sure, now. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So probably many entrepreneur owner managers who know you a little bit or know of the rapid manufacturing story, or even if they're listening to this podcast, they could get the feeling that you know your life has been a series of successes. Have there been some challenges some stumbles or maybe even what I'd consider to be a failure along the way that's particularly notable that you learned something from? And if so, could you well, share it with us? I think you've said you have an MBA in failures. and Yes, I do. I might have a doctorate. <laughs> it's uh, it's been a lot of failures uh, along the way. But one of the things, I, perhaps the, the Stoic philosophy, is that you take the cards that are dealt you and you move forward and you don't think about what could have been but uh, what you will do with those cards. That's a challenging one. Yeah. So when I started Rapid, I made some real rookie mistakes. I hired a young man who I viewed as a partner to run the operations. He was the general manager and he convinced me to hire his fiance as the office manager and it just so happens the, and he came from Prototech uh, after they'd been sold he, he wasn't happy there and nor was the shop manager of Prototech so we brought along the shop manager who was the fiance's father so there's a lot going on there Jay. a lot going on there and uh, so of the six or seven people working in the company half of them related well it, it turns out that he was just not a good fit we didn't see eye to eye on some of the basic business operating uh, principles so I let him go about a year in and that created all sorts of turmoil it almost took the business down probably should have taken the business down and so the putting myself in that situation, oh, I, I look at that. Uh, that's that was a pretty big failure. And did uh, did that mean that um, the learning from that was sort of like a no nepotism policy? It was to we 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 at, uh, there was nepotism at Rapid uh, after that, but not to the point where it could take down the company. Right. A friend of mine, a very successful entrepreneur owner manager, said to me one day, uh, we were chatting about this topic, and he said, well, you know, I have a theory of relativity. He said, can you explain the theory of relativity? And I said, uh, well, if you give me enough time, I can. What's your theory of relativity? He said, no relatives in the business. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, uh, 
it can it can bring some challenges, but uh, they, I have to say that the folks at Rapid who later on it was there was always good in those situations. They worked it out. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I would say another failure, which just comes from from being in the middle of it, is I did did not spend the money. I was cheap in hiring the general manager to run a proprietary machining group, which we started. And I was trying to, to save some money. And when we s sold Rapid, that division was not operating anywhere near at its potential. And if I had, and it cost cost the shareholders a lot of money by uh, what what we could have gotten for that. So if I had said, let's hire the best person possible and spent the appropriate money and had that person grow and develop and really make that division take off, uh, we would have been in a much better place. Yeah, that's an interesting question, isn't it? For those of us who bootstrap our businesses and don't use a lot of debt, mm -hmm. it, you know, it's probably frequently true that hiring the A player mm -hmm. in advance of revenues is frequently the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. But it seems so painful because sure. that person costs your, a lot for It's for your a, money as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend who says, uh, who would say if he were here, yeah, but Pete, A players are free because mm -hmm. every A player brings so much mm -hmm. to the business, even in terms if you want to measure it in revenue or profitability, or as you did, mm -hmm. enterprise value. Mm -hmm. It's just hard to have that in mind along the way. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I would say another uh, failure was the concept that strategic coach called the gap in the gain. And that's where strategic coach helped definitely increase the enterprise value of Rapid. And what I did as an entrepreneur, I had very aggressive goals. We, we grew from 2009 uh, on 32% uh, a year. And we didn't always grow 32% a year, but that was generally the goal. And we grew 20% one year, and my team felt like a failure. And you look at that, 20% growth is pretty good. Yeah, it's great. But they, they thought they had failed. And rather than looking back and saying, look how far we've come, we were just looking and saying, okay, we didn't, we didn't get to the, the destination. The ideal. Even though, yeah. yeah. So when I flipped that around and I made sure both from a mentality and as well as an incentive side that my team was always put in the game, the, it was amazing. Even though the, to be in the game, the objectives were much less than 32%, they, they 
knocked it out of the park. They, they hit their objective, but they were hungry and they wanted more and they felt good about it because they accomplished, they, they had a win under their belt. Right. And so that enabled the success that we had. That's great. So let me ask you a couple of questions just sort of wrapping up here. Um, so what advice would you give to some you know, smart, driven, college engineering senior who wants to become an entrepreneur? Well, I think the stereotype is, unfortunately, the, the VC-backed entrepreneurs that you read about all the time in the business magazines. Right. And to ask yourself the question, why do I want to be an entrepreneur? And there is nothing wrong with being an entrepreneur with a lifestyle business and growing 5% a year and providing a good income for yourself and for your employees? Or do you, as an entrepreneur, are you trying to change the world? And just asking yourself the question, what's, why do I, what's my motivation? And then having the courage and the freedom not to follow the paths that are more dictated to the VC um, geared entrepreneurs. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, it seems like the entrepreneur stories that we read about are frequently, um, you know, you know, Silicon Valley technology businesses mm -hmm. that have a, a VC approach and a certain growth curve and a certain attractiveness, you know, drama, Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And yet there's literally millions of entrepreneur owner managers yeah. who were relatively anonymous mm -hmm. working in, in areas like, you know, candidly, probably like you did. Well, you look at it, the person who runs the local pizza place is probably an entrepreneur. Sure. Every franchise owner is an entrepreneur. Right. And there's a lot more of them than there are the, the tech entrepreneurs. Yeah. So, so that's a good thought. Um, let me turn it around. What's the worst advice you hear given to young entrepreneurs? I don't know that I have an answer for that one. Okay. Well, we'll put a flag there. If you want to come back to it, we can. So um, you are a parallel entrepreneur. You always have a number of things going. We've talked about Rapid and we talked mm -hmm. about Paperless, but I don't doubt that there's a half a dozen items on the white card in your pocket that you're sure. thinking about. Um, you're, you're a son, you're a father, you're a husband, you're a mentor, um, you're a giver. So as a giver, you get depleted from time to time. What, what do you do to get refreshed? Well, I like the phrase, the extroverted introvert. So I draw my energy by going back in, uh, to myself and listening to podcasts, reading, both for uh, ideas and concepts as well as just for fun, and then the exercise. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So this is a Pete question. Let's pretend we go to sleep tonight and we close our eyes and magically tomorrow morning we open our eyes, we wake up and it's March 12th, uh, 2028, 10 years from now. What do you think you'll be working on? Well, one of the projects which I am spending some time trying to figure out whether I can make an impact there or not is to help make poaching obsolete and specifically by using the exponential technologies to create man-made animal parts. So there's an individual, Matthew Marcus, a Pembian, and he's gone down this path for a few years now in looking to create man-made rhino horn. So I think that the time is right or near where the technology exists where we can create essentially a genetically equivalent and visually indistinguishable man-made rhino horn and substitute that into the poaching supply chain at such a much lower cost that you take away the incentive to poach the actual animals and that can be then leveraged across other animal species the sharks uh, obviously the elephants and their tusks so that's a long-term project and I'm not sure that I will be engaged with that in 10 years but it is something where I is drawing my attention now and I think I might be able to make an impact. Yeah, that's great. Uh, are you and Matthew working on that now? Matthew's been working on it for quite a bit. I am talking with him on a regular basis and looking to understand how I might be able to help him. How did you guys meet? Well, that's where the intention comes in. I reached out to him and let him know of my interest and see just initiated a conversation. Oh, that's great. Great. I, uh, I'm fascinated by whether uh, people are uh, more uh, driven by the past or called to the future. I mean, for uh, 150 years in traditional psychology, uh, all, of the, um, all the focus has been on the past. So, you know, whether it's Freudian psychology or Jung or others would talk about what you're doing today or what you may do in the future was, just to be ridiculous to make the point, was, you know, a, a function of what happened when you were a baby. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet um, there's a new thoughts in psychology about prospection, about how actually that might not be right, that what you really are are, are called to the future. As you think about yourself, do you lean one way or the other? I'm definitely future-driven. So as you think about your actions to date and your actions in the next 10 years, you would hear, you would think of yourself as more listening to the future than being driven by the past? Yes. I think that there are going to be incredible benefits for mankind in the future and that the 
opportunities are going to be unlimited. We're going to see so much abundance. Cool. So here's my last question for you. Um, in this group of listeners to this podcast, both entrepreneur owner managers, and some of those are in for-profit organizations like yours and mine, mm -hmm. and some of them are not-for-profits, um, they're high-performing and they um, focus on superior achievement. And actually, I would say superior achievement among this group is quite uh, sure. common. But not all of them would consider themselves to be fulfilled or content. Would you describe yourself as content? Yes. And you want to know why? Yes. The exit of Rapid has given me freedom of time and freedom of money. And I have the opportunity to pursue the dreams that, that I can envision. And I'm fortunate and grateful to be in that position. Yeah, that's great. Jay, I want to thank you so much for your, your generosity of spending time with us today, but also your creativity and most of all your friendship. Well, thank you, Pete. You. I appreciate fun. you having me here, and I appreciate your friendship as well. It's been great to get to know you over the last year. Thanks.